Well, anybody here that's married, uh, after you got married, did anybody have to quickly deconstruct some of the assumptions you had about marriage when you were single? Anybody else out there? Um, what do you mean you don't want to watch ESPN every night? Like, I thought that was our plan. You still want to be intimate every night, every night, right? You still? I mean, there's some things that we, we just kind of assumed that, that, you know, we had, all of a sudden we had some uncertainty. I was talking to a, a couple this past week we're really good friends with. We were having dinner, and he was telling me a story about how his son called me. He's just recently married, and he said his son said, Dad, I discovered that if I just clean up my messes, everything goes better. It's like, well, yeah, you probably didn't think that was going to be as big of a deal, right, beforehand. I think there's so many times in our life that we enter a season with a lot of certainty or we enter something with certainty and all of a sudden there's a lot of uncertainty. And our certainty is shaken. And I think the same thing can happen with your faith. The, the term deconstruction is a term that's being used a lot nowadays. It was coined in the 1960s and admittedly, I just wanna say this, it does mean different things to different people but I wanna use a simple definition for us as we go through this series, Reconstruction. Here's, here's what deconstruction, uh, I, I want you to think about it means. It means the process of dissecting, questioning, or in extreme cases, even rejecting your faith. And you may see this today with, with people around you. They're kind of in a deconstruction mode. It, it may even describe where some of you are at today. I actually believe that, that most of us in life go through a season of, of deconstruction. In fact, uh, developmental psychologists will tell us that you really go through three phases for, for maturity. There's a phase of construction, deconstruction, and then you have to move to a phase of reconstruction. Uh, think about it, in your childhood, in, in construction, you were handed in your childhood kind of the building blocks of a worldview and some beliefs, and oftentimes they were very black and white, and we can exit our teenage years way overconfident, thinking we've got everything figured out, and then something happens where we begin to deconstruct. We, we question maybe what we believe or what we were taught or our worldview, and when that happens, you have to know that the healthiest thing and what has to happen is you have to move to a season of reconstruction where you begin to reconstruct your life on a firm foundation, not just opinion, but on truth and something that will last. Um, I, I personally went through a season of deconstruction in my life. Um, I, I was raised in an amazing family that gave me really great building blocks for my faith. But when I went to Bible college and I began really studying scripture, um, I began to question some things, not, not necessarily about my faith, but really about the, the church specifically. I, I grew up in a church where, I don't know if anyone else grew up this way, I'll show you a picture. Um, when I went to church, it really mattered what you wore. Um, this is a picture of me. I have a sweater vest and a tie on. I'm up front there because you wore a tie because God deserved your best, you know? And I began questioning little things like that. Does it really matter what you wear to church, you know? And for those of you wearing Seahawks jerseys, maybe it does for you, okay? Maybe it does, all right? Um, but I began to question little things. I began to question bigger things, like what's the purpose of the church? You know, is the church just for insiders, just for Christians, or is the church designed to be a light and to reach out for people far from God that don't know God at all. You know, I began to deconstruct, but I began to reconstruct based on scripture on a firmer foundation. So the first thing I wanna say about deconstruction is it's not all bad. In fact, um, I believe Jesus, if you really study the life of Jesus, he began to deconstruct the religious leaders of his day. What did Jesus say? Jesus said things like this, like, you've heard it said, but I say. What was Jesus doing? 
Jesus was taking God's word scripture and he was critiquing and deconstructing the religious leaders and the worldviews of his day. And this is deconstruction the way of Jesus, using God's truth to critique and look at the worldviews and ideologies all around us. But then there's a destructive form of deconstruction where we take the world's ideologies and the worldview all around us and we begin to deconstruct and critique God. And this is where I believe that many people are today. And, and when you do that, when you take the world's ideologies and you begin to deconstruct God, it leaves you in a desert of doubt and skepticism potentially for the rest of your life because how many of you know the world's ideologies change every year? Every single year. There's no firm foundation. And so the, the purpose of this series is that we can reconstruct our lives on something firmer. And I just want you to know, one of the goals of this series is that you do not stay in the deconstruction phase. Remember, it was just designed to be a phase. You weren't designed to be stuck there in this desert of doubt forever. You have to move to reconstruction. And so I believe God wants to use this series for some of us to even reconstruct our faith, maybe to reconstruct it on a really firm foundation. So what I'm going to do every week is we're going to take one of the reasons people are deconstructing today, and we're just going hit, to hit it head on, all right? And the reason this is so important is because you have an enemy that wants you to stay in the deconstruction phase forever. It's, it's his play. It's how he deceives you. Did you know that the very first destructive thing that ever happened to humanity in history happened because Satan convinced Adam and Eve to deconstruct and doubt God? Can I show it to you really, really clearly? Genesis chapter three, verse one, it says this, now the serpent, that's Satan, was more crafty. The word crafty means an expert in deception. He's a liar. Later on, we're told he is the father of lies. No one lies to you more than Satan. And look what it says. It goes on to say this. He said to the woman, what did he say to the woman? And eventually Adam and Eve, he said this. Say it out loud with me, all of our campuses. What did he say? Say it out loud. Did God really say, say it again one more time. Did God really say, did God really say that? Did God really say you can't have that? I mean, look how good it looks. Look at that fruit. God wouldn't keep something that good from you. God didn't really say that, did he? What is Satan doing? He's getting you to deconstruct and doubt exactly what God said. This is the playbook Satan's been running since the beginning of time, and it's the playbook he's running exactly today as well, maybe with some of us. And what he has us doing is maybe even looking at this book and going, God didn't really say that. I mean, this is probably an archaic, ancient, outdated book that's changed over time. It's a little man-made. God didn't really say that, did he? And here's what we, we know is, is this, is deconstruction becomes destructive the moment we abandon God's truth for human wisdom. What does 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 say? All scripture is God-breathed, and it is, say it out loud, useful. It's useful. That word means to enhance your life. And the word God-breathed, I love, it's this compound Greek word that means directly from the lungs of God. Like, think about this. We're told that this book is directly from the lungs of God 
into your life. Why? So that you can be thoroughly equipped. The verse goes on to say it's, it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, you would be thoroughly equipped for anything that happens in your life, your marriage, your, your finances, your kids, your, your mental health, right? Any obstacle that comes your way, you'd be thoroughly equipped according to God's word spoken into your life. What this verse also tells us is this is that God's word won't be that useful if you don't trust it's God-breathed. Isn't that fair? This is the root of deconstruction, is when Satan gets us to question, God didn't really say that. This is probably a made-up book. And so what I wanna do today is I just wanna give you five reasons that you can trust God's word, that it's true. Now, I've taught some of this in the past, but I think it's so important that we need to be reminded oftentimes more than taught something brand new. And so I hope you'll take notes today. Reason number one that you can trust God's word is true is the Bible's historical accuracy. I'm gonna read you a historical statement and you just tell me if there's anything wrong with this. Um, Tesla is an electric vehicle manufacturer headquartered in Silicon Valley, California. It was incorporated in January 1999 by Elon Musk. The company's name is tribute to Musk's oldest daughter, Elsa, adding a T for creative branding. Now, you see anything wrong with that? Let me, let me just point out a few things. Number one, I got the wrong place. It's not Silicon Valley, California. They're, they're based in Austin, Texas. I got the wrong date. It's not January 99. It's actually July 2003. I got the wrong people. Did you know Elon Musk did not found Tesla? This kind of surprised me, too. He bought the company later on. You know who founded it? Two guys, Martin Eberhardt and Mark Tarpanin. I didn't know that. And the company isn't named after his daughter, the company's named after an electrical engineer named Nikola Tesla. Now, I just show you that to say one point. Accurate history always, always has accurate dates, people, places, and facts confirmed to be true. Otherwise, you can't trust that the book is true. And what most people don't know about God's word, the Bible, is this. And just let this sink in. No historical book in the world covers more history than the Bible. The Bible consists of 66 books written over 1,500 years by 40 different people in three different languages on three different continents telling one unified story about Jesus. I mean, it lists thousands, think about this, thousands of events and places and rulers and rivers, mountains, countries, cities, coins. In the book of Acts alone, a doctor named Luke lists 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine islands in one book. I mean, if this was made up, what are the odds that there's at least one gross historical inaccuracy in this book if it was just made up by men? What are the odds? I mean, it covers more history than anything in the world. Now, for example, and this is not meant to be offensive. If you're a Mormon here today, uh, you're visiting or you're, you're checking us out, um, listen, um, this is just designed for you to, you just, just, this is just facts. Joseph Smith wrote the Book of Mormon, a, 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 a document that Mormons use as, as, their, as, as a book. He wrote it. In 1830, it contains writings of ancient prophets who lived on the, on the American continent from 600 B.C. to around 421 A.D. That's just fact. It lists cities. It lists events. It lists people groups, the Nephites. It lists, it lists coins they had. And don't, don't take this as, as me saying this. The National Geographic Society, in August 12, 1998, you can go... You can go look this up yourself. They wrote this. 
archaeologists and other scholars do not know of anything found so far that substantiates the Book of Mormon. There's not been one archaeological find that substantiates the facts and the history listed in the Book of Mormon. What about the Bible? Did you know there have been over 25,000 archaeological digs confirming the facts of the Bible? There's a, there's a whole archaeological study Bible where you can open up that study Bible and it tells you fact after fact confirming every single historical event in the Bible. I love this quote by Nelson uh, Gluick. He's an archaeologist. He said, it may be categorically stated that no archaeological discovery has ever, 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 ever contradicted a biblical reference. But isn't that what you'd expect if this was breathed by the breath of God? That's why Psalms 33, 4 says, the word of the Lord is right and it's true. Now, that's one thing, the historical accuracy, but some of you would say this. Well, that's just because over time, maybe people have just kind of changed this book or wordsmithed it, so all the history kind of matches up. And the second reason I think you can really, really trust that the Bible is true is because of its textual accuracy. The Bible has more ancient copies closer to the original date completed than any historical book in the history of the world. And let me just show you a few examples. Now think about ancient writings and whether they've changed over time. We have the works of Plato. We have seven manuscripts, and the earliest manuscript we have, the works of Plato, is written over 1,200 years after it was actually penned by him. We have the Gallic Wars by Julius Caesar, Tacitus' History and Annuals. We have 10 and two documents of those written almost 1,000 years after they were completed. You say, well, what about, what about the Bible? Now watch the comparison. We have 5,700 ancient documents from the Bible. And some of the earliest were written within 40 years of when it actually happened. Some argue within 20 years. Now, what are the odds out of those thousands and thousands of documents that here we are 2,000 years later in the New Testament, what's the odds our New Testament matches the earliest documents right after it happened, like the earliest manuscripts? What's, what's the odds? I would encourage you, you can, you can go Google fact check this yourself. The Bible we have today is 99.5% with exact accuracy to every single one of those ancient documents. It has not changed. You'd say, what's the 0.5%? It's almost all spelling errors. Has anybody else this week typed a text or an email with a, with a typo in it? Yeah, imagine writing by hand the entire Bible. Now, the Jewish scribes were unbelievable. The fact that there's only 0.5% is, is, should be unbelievable to most of us, but of course they had a few spelling errors. Now, there's a few variations that aren't spelling errors, very few, it's so minuscule. What would those be? They would be things like this, and you, these are some of the variations, it would be things like this. Someone, one of them wrote, we are saved by the Lord Jesus, another one wrote, we're saved by Jesus our Lord. You go, well which one is it? <laughs> yes and yes, right? I mean, the Bible's textual accuracy is unmatched by any book in history. You'd say, well, why do people question its accuracy so much? Here's my opinion. This is just my opinion. I believe people question the Bible's accuracy because the Bible makes them question their own authority. 
You know what most of us do not like? We don't like anyone to have an authority over us. We wanna be the authority in our life. I do what I wanna do on my terms. No one tells me anything. But if this is God's word, this is over all of us. It is an authority that, is, that we have to say, God, you are Lord. I submit to your authority, not my own. And because we hate that, we love to put this thing down. That's oh, not accurate so that we can become the authority. Jesus prayed this in John 17, 17. I love this. He said, God, would you sanctify them by the truth? He's praying for us. God, make them holy. Make them who they need to be by the truth. Jesus, where do we get the truth? Jesus says, your word is truth. God, that's where we find the truth. Here's the third reason I think you can trust that the Bible is true. It's the Bible's scientific accuracy. Now, I think so many people today would say this, that the Bible and science, um, they, they, they can't exist together. They, they, there's no congruency between the Bible and science. And I know there's a lot of people that get hung up over the miracles in the Bible because you can't prove a miracle by science. But isn't it true? I mean, think about this. If there's a God who's all-powerful in heaven, wouldn't we expect miracles? I mean, isn't that something you would just expect if there's a God? But what about how old this book is? I mean, it's so old. And think about what we know today scientifically versus what was thought scientifically 2,000 years ago. I mean, your first grade science book is outdated today, yours. Think about 2,000 years ago. What are the odds that in scripture somewhere there's some sort of boo-boo that doesn't match science today? For example, when scripture was written, almost everyone on earth believed that the earth was flat. Some still do, okay? Some still do. But we, we, we know this. It wasn't until Copernicus and Galileo and even Columbus that we realized the earth isn't flat. It's a sphere. It's a globe. It's a circle. But remember, the, the Bible accounts for the creation of the world. I mean, what are the odds that everyone else believed the earth was flat, that maybe someone in there says, ah, oh, it's flat? Yet, listen to what was written 2,600 years ago before anybody knew. Isaiah 40, 22, he, that's God, sits enthroned above the, oh, the circle that is the earth, the globe, the sphere, but that's what you expect if it was God's word. Another one that's really interesting to me is during the, the time that the Bible was written, almost every ancient culture and religion believed that the earth was held up by something. If you look at the Greeks, they believed that the earth was held up by Atlas. You see this in Greek mythology. In the Hindu religion, they actually believed the earth was held up by a series of elephants that were standing on the back of their god Vishnu who had reincarnated into a turtle. This is, this is just the Hindu, the Hindu religion. They believe that. The Egyptians believed the earth was held up by one of their gods. And we know Moses, who wrote the creation account, was raised in an Egyptian household with an Egyptian education. So what are the odds that maybe they would say, ah, it's held up by something? Did you know the oldest book in the Bible? It's not Genesis. The oldest book in the Bible is the book of Job. It is the oldest book. Listen to what the book of Job says in Job 26, 7. He, God, spreads out the northern skies over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. Nothing. That's incredibly validating to me for Scripture. To be true and scientifically it fits like a glove. That my favorite, my favorite thing on this topic um, is the topic of circumcision. What God gave us on, uh, gave the Israelites on circumcision. Now, if you don't know what circumcision is, uh, our teaching pastor, Mark Moore, said he would love to explain that to you. Uh, you can just go, <laughs> go ask him. But uh, 
I wanna talk to the guys for just a minute. Guys, imagine being circumcised 2,000, 3,000 years ago. Could you imagine? There's no hospital clean rooms. There's no painkillers, right? There's no like disinfectants. You know, there's no, like if something went wrong, what do you do, right? I mean, you are just praying that the guy doing your procedure has a steady hand, right? I mean, they don't have razor sharp knives. Think about the number of things that could go wrong. Now, let me just read you the exact um, instructions by God for circumcision. No one had ever even done this before in history. It's in Genesis chapter 17, verse 12. God says this, every male baby will be circumcised when he is, and every single campus, say it out loud, eight days old. Why eight days? Why exactly on the eighth day? Why not day two? Why not day 15? I'm thinking like, give the little guy a shot. Day 100, right? <laughs> Why day eight? Do you know what we have just discovered scientifically? For a cut to clot and for you not to bleed out or, or really to have an infection, for a cut to heal, the body has to produce something called prothrombin. Prothrombin is produced in the body when there are really high levels of vitamin K. And without proper levels of prothrombin in the body, um, you can hemorrhage and bleed out and die. Now, in a male's lifetime, we've just discovered this scientifically in, a, in the 1930s. In a male's lifetime, guess which day of his life is the highest day of prothrombin pr produced in his body more than any other day of his life? Guess what day it is? Day eight. You peak on day eight in a male's life, and it's not any higher before, and it's downhill after. You'd say, how did Genesis, written 3,500 years ago, get that right? Because that's what you'd expect from a God who knows your body more than any scientist ever would. The Bible and science do not contradict each other. In fact, I love this quote from um, Johannes Kepler. He says this, science is simply thinking God's thoughts after him. And I love that because science is continually catching up with what the Bible already said. And when you think about like day circumcision, for some of you, that should be it. Like that should be it. Someone says, hey, why do you trust that the Bible's true? You just say, day circumcision, bro. That's why. <laughs> I mean, it's unbelievable. The fourth reason I think you can trust that the Bible is true is the Bible's prophetic accuracy. You have to understand something about scripture. It sets itself up for major failure based on the number of prophecies that it gives in scripture. I mean, there are thousands of them. There are over 300 prophecies about Jesus in scripture. I mean, think about this, exactly where he'd be born, the exact city, how he'd die, the number of silver coins he'd be betrayed for, the exact number of days he'd be buried before he rose again. I mean, it just sets itself up for failure with all these prophecies. And here's the biggest pushback about all the prophecies of Jesus coming true. And I think this is a legitimate pushback by a lot of the skeptics. They would say something like this. Well, how easy would it be, like after Jesus is born in the New Testament and he dies, how easy would it be for, for his followers to flip back to the Old Testament and write in, he will be born in Bethlehem. Oh, he was born in Bethlehem. I mean, how easy would that have been? I think that's a legitimate concern right up until the, the year 1947, with arguably the greatest historical find in history when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls in Israel. A little boy is in, in the desert, he's throwing rocks in a cave, and he finds 
the oldest known manuscripts of the Bible in existence today. They have been carbon dated scientifically, many of them to 300 years before the birth of Jesus, which means if the Bible we have today matches exactly the Dead Sea Scrolls, the prophecies weren't written in, the prophecies came true. And the Bible we have today is 99.9% exactly to what we found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, exactly. And here's the God wink to me. I think God winks at you sometimes and goes, see, do you know which book of the Bible we found more scrolls and more fragments of scrolls than any other book of the Bible? It's the book of Isaiah. In Israel today, you can still visit the Israel Museum and see the giant Isaiah scroll. It's right above me. It's, it's on display. It's, it's spectacular. It's huge. This is the largest scroll they found. And the most uh, fragments and scrolls they found were from the book of Isaiah. Guess which book of the Bible has more prophecies about Jesus than any other book of the Bible? The book of Isaiah. And that's God winking at you and saying the prophetic accuracy of Scripture is some of the greatest evidence you can have. In fact, Peter Stoner, a little bit of a rough name if you ask me that last name maybe. <laughs> Peter Stoner was an, a, an astronomist and a mathematician. He wanted to do the math on not all 300 of, of, God, of the prophecies of Jesus becoming true, but just eight of them. What are the odds that eight of the prophecies of Jesus could just randomly come true? Like maybe just Jesus accidentally fulfilled them. And here's his math. The odds of just eight of the prophecies of Jesus coming through is one chance in one with 17 zeros. In other words, 100 quadrillion, not even a number we can even fathom or comprehend. In other words, his math says it's impossible. Lee Strobel uh, helped us out years ago. Lee Strobel said, let me just put this number in perspective. Here's how you could understand this number. Imagine you took the entire state of Texas, filled it with silver coins two feet deep, the entire state of Texas. You took a monkey, blindfolded him, sent him into Texas, said pick one coin. You painted one of those coins red. The odds that a blindfolded monkey could walk into the state of Texas and choose one coin, and it happened to be the red coin out of the whole entire state of Texas, two feet deep, that's the odds that Jesus could fulfill eight, eight of the prophecies about him. The prophetic evidence is so strong. 2 Peter 1.21 says this, for, the prophecy, for prophecy never had its origin in human will. All these prophecies, it wasn't human will, but the prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried by the Holy Spirit. In other words, God's breath, God's spirit, enabled these men to pen God's words on paper. They were enabled by the Holy Spirit. And I just think if you stopped right now and you said, hey, if you've struggled understanding if this book is true, I believe the historical, the textual, the scientific, and the prophetic evidence is overwhelming. But that doesn't help some of you, does it? Because it's not the external evidence that hangs you up, is it? It's the internal pain that you either feel or you see all around you. See, the thing that, that hangs so many of us up today is, is we look in the scripture, we look at a God who's so good. He's so good, he's said to be so good. And then we look at our, the, the world around us and we see so much evil and pain and suffering, maybe even some pain and suffering that, that we're experiencing. We can't reconcile 
How does this good God allow so much pain and suffering? And that's why next week I'm gonna preach maybe one of the most important messages I'll preach all year long. I'm gonna hit head on how could a good God allow so much pain and suffering in our world? And I pray that you'll be here. I pray you invite people with you like never before because so many people struggle with this. But for all of us today, let me, let me end with, with one more evidence. And to me, this is the most powerful evidence that scripture and God's word is true. It's the Bible's ability to transform your life. The most transformed people I know are people that are living their life, not perfectly, but to the best of their ability, according to what God says and according to the way of Jesus. The people I know with the most peace, the most joy, the most purpose in life, the biggest ability to overcome the challenges that this world throws at you are people that are living their life, not perfectly, but the best they can according to God's word. That's what I'm trying to do. You know I'm doing that very imperfectly, but those are the people I know in my life, and I bet, I bet you, you know them as well. It's people like my mom. This is one of my most prized possessions I have. I keep this in my office. This is my mom's Bible. It's falling apart, and the, the cover's off of it. There's just edges on it. It's not falling apart because it's really old. It's falling apart because it's been used so much. Almost every day of my life, I watch my mom open this book and engage it and try to live it out. Even as she went through sometimes hell on earth. My mom lost a child. Mom had financial difficulties. She had a lot of family, we had family trauma at times. My mom went through a divorce. But I watched my mom use this book to guide her life. And today, she is the most joyful, peace-filled, purpose-filled overcomer that I know. That's why it's been said that a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. Some of you are like, well, I don't, have a, I don't have a hard Bible anymore. I read my Bible off my app or on my computer or something else. So let me rewrite this for you. Okay, I rewrote this for you. A person whose Bible app is streaking belongs to someone who's not freaking <laughs> out. All right? Freaking out. All right? I put the word out in there so you knew, okay? You know, you can get a Bible streak. You know, you can, it's like how many days in a row you've been in the Bible. It's kind of cool. It tracks it for you. It's like, man, if your Bible's streaking, you're probably not freaking out, right? Freaking out. So here, here's the takeaway today. Here's the takeaway today. The challenge for you. If you need more evidence, I have touched the surface today. I can't even cover. I could go two more hours, three more hours, a whole day on all the evidence. And we, we put more resources online for you, so you can go search more. There's a lot of books you can, you can dive into that, that tell you the scripture is true. But my guess is today that most of you don't need more evidence most of you need more application. Because it's, you'll never see the Bible transform your life until, until you apply it to your life. You can know it's true, but if you don't apply it, it's worthless. It, has, it doesn't have value. It's just, it's just a thing that sits on your shelf. And so I hope for all of us today 
Today would be a, a grounding day where we begin to reconstruct and say, I have to construct my life on the truth of God. Why? Because you have, you have an option. You, be, you can begin to construct your life on the world's ideologies, which remember, they change every year almost daily. And that's why you will be put in a rabbit hole of de, in a desert of doubt and skepticism for the rest of your life. Or you can begin to base your, wor- your life on the truth of God's word. And as we go through this series, I hope you'll journey with us. It's gonna be a journey because we're gonna hit some of the hardest topics throughout this series that are causing people to deconstruct. I pray you go on a journey with us because I believe you can reconstruct and construct your life on a firm foundation to do what Jesus said in John 8, 31 through 32. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you'll know the truth. Everybody say the bold out loud. And the truth will what? Set you free. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth in your word. God, there's so much evidence and and you've given us so much to understand that it is truly from you. It's, It's breathed from your lungs into our life. And some of us have just been rejecting that truth and it's causing us to spiral out of control as we follow the world's ways, not your word. So I pray for someone today, and even me, that we'd be more confident than ever in turning to your word and understanding that it is truth. And I pray for us to apply it to our lives, and as we go on this journey, I pray for anybody who's here that's, that's been deconstructing or struggling, or they have a friend or family member who is, would you speak to us so powerfully through this series that we can begin to construct our lives and hold on to your truth, a firm foundation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Hey, before you leave, let me remind you, next week I'm gonna hit the number one question that is causing so many people to question their faith. How could a good God allow so much pain and suffering in our world? We'll see you then. Until then, get into God's word and let it be a foundation for your life. Have a great week, CCV.